Thank you very much. Okay, what are the repeated phrases or the patterns? What do you think that shows us? And also, where do we see the gospel in Genesis chapter 1? Why not turn to the people just next to you, have a quick chat about that for a couple of minutes. into the text of Genesis chapter 1, which as I say is a very familiar uh, chapter for lots of us, but there's so much in here that is so, so important. Um, And uh, we're only going to be scratching the surface of what I think Trev called icebergs, the icebergs of these doctrines, uh, loads more under the water to study, but tonight is just a glimpse of it. And we're going to learn about four things tonight. We're going to learn about God, we're going to learn about the world, about us, and about the gospel. Um, So firstly, God's Genesis chapter 1 tells us a huge amount about ourselves, and we'll come to that at the end of this talk and then in future weeks as well. But in the first chapter of the Bible, human beings don't even appear until verse 25. And even then, they don't do anything. So this whole chapter is about God. First four words of the Bible, in the beginning, God. And that is really important for us to remember in terms of our theology. So the word theology, which we're studying theology all this term, we study theology every Sunday. The word theology, theos, Greek for gods, uh, logos, Greek for words, uh, study. So it's the study of God. And theology is about gods. And that feels really obvious. But actually, it's very, very easy for us to drift into theology being about us, whether that is to do with salvation how we are saved, or about morality, or about what we should be doing as a church. It's really easy for us to drift into it being about us. What do I think about this? What do I think is right and wrong? But the Bible's theology always starts with God. And in Genesis chapter 1, God, as always in the Bible, is the one taking the initiative. So here, he is creating Carl Sagan was a uh, very famous astronomer and scientist. He presented a documentary series about the universe, apparently the most watched documentary series of all, of all time, and uh, certainly the most famous one about space. And he began it with this sentence. This is the very first moment of his documentary. The cosmos is all there is, or ever was, or ever will be. And it's a, it's a great dramatic start to a documentary series, and it is totally incorrect. It's not true. The Bible says that before creation, there was God. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect, loving relationship. God is the ultimate reality, not the material world. John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word is God the Son. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was there in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So do you see the order? In verse 3, we see that the Son makes the world. But in verses 1 and 2, before the world is made, before creation, before anything else, there is God. God is eternal. And God was in perfect, loving relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as the perfect God. So he's there before creation, not needing creation. Even before the creation of time, he is there. He's not dependent on his creation. That's, that's really important for us to recognize. So there are quite a lot of worldviews and religions, particularly Eastern religions, where gods or the, the concept of gods or gods is so tied up in the universe that if the universe didn't exist, the gods really wouldn't exist. 
They are codependent. But actually, the Bible says, Genesis 1 says, God was there before the creation of the world, perfect and unneedy. He didn't need to create. But he does create. He creates so that his love can overflow and so that we can see his glory. And that's a loving act from him. And so we read Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's creating ex nihilo. It's a Latin phrase, ex, like exodus or exit means out of. So God is creating out of nothing. So we have lots of creative people in our church. We have people who are um, just in terms of church ministries, just creative in terms of children's work and children's talks, or in terms of uh, men's sheds, making things, or music, or designing sermon series slides. But the thing about God is, God creates out of nothing. Out of nothing. That is one of the, the ways in which his attributes are totally different from ours. What else do we learn? We learn that this world is not the result of chance or accident. So there's obviously been a lot of debate over the past couple of hundred years uh, about science and Genesis 1 and how we should interpret it. So in 1859, uh, Charles Darwin published the, uh, On the Origin of Species, about the, his theory of evolution. And then the Big Bang Theory was proposed at the start of the 20th century. And since then, there has been debates within Christian circles about how should we interpret Genesis chapter 1. Although actually, if you go back to the early church fathers, back to people like Augustine and Origen, they were already thinking about these kind of questions. And we don't have time to go into that tonight. There are Bible-believing Christians on both sides of that debate. But can I suggest that that is not the biggest debate? That is not the biggest question. The biggest question is, are we here by chance, by accident, or are we here as the result of a creator God? Let me... Put that up. Those are the two options, okay? You've got creation with a creator and a designer and this purpose or accidentalism. We're just here by accident, by chance, purposelessness. It's a very hard word to say. I regret, regret putting that on the screen now. Um, accidentalism is, is the view of people who, who are atheists, who don't believe in God, who say we are just matter floating in space. We somehow got here through scientific processes that are entirely the result of chance. The odds are against us, but somehow we've ended up here tonight. And Genesis 1 says in crystal clear terms that however God did it, God did it. God created. It's not an accident. It's not chance. The way the universe is and the fact that we are here tonight is the result of a designer God. And that applies to everything in the universe. So in Colossians 1 uh, verse 16, Paul says, By him, that's the Son, by him all things were created, things in heaven or earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And so we should be able to look at the universe and go, wow, the universe is so incredible because it's designed. So Isaac Newton, the, the famous scientist, uh, he, uh, he once cr um, constructed a model of the solar system, as he understood it then, so with different planets, and it was quite intricate, it's quite impressive for his time. And someone walked into his study, someone who was an atheist, didn't believe in God. And the person saw this, this, uh, this, this model of the universe and went, wow, that's amazing, who made that? And Newton really quickly went, no one. And the person went, that's ridiculous, who made it? And he said... No one. And the person said, well, no, it's, like, it's so intricate, it's so designed, obviously someone made it. And Newton said, well, how can you then look at the universe and not think the same thing? 
Now, if you go back 15 years or so ago, there was a lot of talk from thinkers who were atheists, people like Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens. Some of you will remember this. Um, They were known as militant atheists. Um, And they went out of their way to convince the world that there was no God. They published lots of uh, quite well-known books. Um, And I don't think there's as much talk about that now. I think people have spotted its flaws and its emptiness. Um, I have to teach about this at A-level, and it's it's just so depressing. Um, I would say the most people that I speak to, and you can tell me afterwards if you disagree from your perspective, most people I speak to, most of my colleagues, most of my friends, are not really clearly atheists. They're not. They believe there is something out there. So what are they? I think they are functionally atheist. What does that mean? It means they live their lives as if there is no creator God. They live their lives as if there is no king who made this world. There is no designer who put this world in motion and created it as he intended it to be, who gives us purpose. They go through their lives and they ignore their creator. Romans chapter 1 says they suppress the truth of that. They look at the world around them and they suppress the truth that there is a king. So Genesis 1 says this world has a creator and lots of people, whether they would call themselves atheists or not, lots of them live their lives as if there is no creator. So just want you just to chat to the person next to you about these questions. Where do we see this in the world around us? So where do we see this idea that people go through lives as if this world has no creator? And what difference does it make to your life if you think there's a creator or if you think there isn't a creator? Have a quick chat to the person next to you just for a couple of minutes about those questions. Off you go. think about as we go through this week. I was just chatting to Lee over here, and uh, he was saying about the way we, we say that people have value or don't have value. That absolutely changes, depending on whether you think there's a creator God or not. I, mean, I think you see it a lot if you watch TV or read a book or listen to the news, and there is no mention of God. There's no mention of this God that made everything, the God who made us, except perhaps as a swear word. I think you see that at the moment um, in terms of the political debate happening in Scotland. If you're following this on the news, um, Kate Forbes uh, in the SNP leadership election, just the thought that there might be a God who has designed this world and would want to have a say on how we should live our lives and has designed us in a particular kind of way, that just seems crazy to some people. So I read an interview uh, a couple of days ago, and a politician was, was talking about Kate Forbes' views and was saying, um, she, it's fine for her to have these views. It's fine for her to have them on a personal level, on a private level, but she can't expect other people to listen to these views. She can't expect other people in society uh, to care about them. But of course, they aren't really Kate Forbes' views. They're God's views. <laughs> Ultimately, they are God's views. But that politician making that comment, I just think totally disregards the idea that there might be a God who has created everyone. Anyone who's being interviewed, anyone who's commenting, anyone who lives in Scotland, anyone who watches the media, there's a God who created all of us, and that God has a design for us. And I just don't think it really factors in their thinking at all. It's why it's so good that JF, over the last few weeks, have been doing a series on uh, what the Bible says about relationships and sex and identity and gender. 
And those leaders are stopping and they're saying to those young people, do you know what? There is a God who made us. There's a God who designed us and he has a design for us, a good design for us. And we want to tell you about that. And if you're, in, um, if you're at YPF here tonight, maybe you're younger than that, and you're here tonight, you need to know that as you grow up, lots of people, whether directly or indirectly, will be giving you the message, there is no creator. There is no king over the world. There is no one who designed us. And you need to look at how radically different your life will be, how differently it will be shaped if you believe that there is a creator God who has spoken to us through his word. I think even if you're a Christian like me, sometimes you can wake up and go through hours of the day without acknowledging, do you know what? I'm made. I'm made by this God. Everything I'm encountering is made by this God. And Genesis 1 shouts at us and it says, this world is not an accident. It is not chance. It is not random. There is a creator. What else do we learn about God? We see God as a God of order and design. So Genesis 1 is a highly structured account, and I've put a little grid on your uh, handout for you, which um, shows this pattern. So in the first three days, God creates the context, the foundations, uh, light and sea and sky and land and vegetation. And then on the fourth, fifth, and sixth days, he fills those things. So sun, moon, and stars to fill the day and night. Sea creatures and birds to fill the sea and sky. Animals and humans to fill the lands. What does that tell us? It tells us that God is a God of order. God has a plan. God has a design. And we see that running through the rest of the Bible. So we've seen that a lot in the book of Exodus. God has a plan. God has a design. God knows what he is doing. Uh, we see God's power, his omnipotence. God creates just by speaking. In the ancient world, there were uh, creation stories where gods would battle it out to see who could create and, and what they would end up creating. God doesn't do that. He just speaks. Things come into existence. So Genesis 1 verse 3, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. There's no battle. There's no battle over it. Um, in the ancient world, uh, they would make gods of different parts of nature. And we, uh, Mike was talking about this uh, this morning. This is Ra, the Egyptian sun god. But they might make gods of the river or the moon or animals or birds. And Genesis 1 is almost ticking off those things, saying, no, God made that, God made that, God made that, God made that. Their very existence is because God has spoken them into being. Um, and let's just take a moment to step back and consider what God makes just by speaking. So if you look at Genesis 1 verse 16, I think this might be the most ridiculous sentence ever written, one of the most ridiculous. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, and the lesser light to govern the night, he also made the stars. And um, YPF have, have, have heard me talk about this before on their summer camp. Uh, this is the number of stars in the universe. I don't even know what that number is. And I've no idea how they get to that number. But how does Genesis 1 describe the creation of all of those stars? Five words. He also made the stars. Just a throwaway comment. That is who our God is. Let's turn to creation itself, to the world. What does Genesis 1 say about our worlds? Um, I guess that's, that's a badly worded question, isn't it? Because it is our world. We live in it. But only because of God's mercy, because God is a generous God. Ultimately, it is God's world. It is his 
creation. God made it, God owns it, God is king over it. Um, Look again at Colossians chapter 1, which says, For in him all things, this is um, the Son of God, uh, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So God the Son made all things, and ultimately he is the king over them. They're made for him. And sin is saying, do you know what? I quite like creation. I do think the universe is amazing. I'll take creation, but I don't want creation's king. That is what sin is. And verse 17 says, in him all things hold hold together. So creation is still being sustained by the Son of God. Um, All the way through the Bible, we see God involved in his creation uh, Mike talked about this this morning. There's a, um, there's a really depressing philosophical belief. Uh, there's a lot of depressing philosophical beliefs. Um, but this one is called deism. And deism basically says, yeah, I'm looking at the world, I'm looking at the universe, and it is incredible. And it does seem really well designed. And the fine-tuning of all the different things that mean that we as human beings can end up where we are, that has to be explained by a designer God. But we don't think that God's still involved in the world. We think that God created the world and then went away. But the Bible says that God is still involved in his creation. The Son of God actually sustains the world. He holds it all together. What else do we learn? That creation isn't God. So God creates the world, but the world is not God. We've already seen that with the Egyptians. The Egyptians used to worship all these parts of nature, thinking that they were God's. Even today, I think it's possible, isn't it, to move from caring about creation to almost worshipping creation, to caring about the environment to almost worshipping the environment. And the Bible says God is God and creation isn't. Creation is incredible. We should be thankful for, for everything around us, but it's not God. But it is good. It is good. So God keeps looking at everything he has made, and he keeps on saying, and this is one of the patterns, the repeated phrases, he keeps on saying, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then he finishes it at the end of chapter 1, and he says, it is very good. Um, Here's another heresy for you, uh, which is called Gnosticism. Gnosticism, which annoyingly spelled with a G at the start. Who knows why? Heresy, uh, this heresy says that the material world is bad. Okay, So they look at the material world and they say all the physical stuff is just evil. And salvation is, is getting freedom from the material world. But Genesis 1 says the creation is good. God made this material world and it is good. And in chapter 2 verse 15, Adam is given the role of looking after the garden, of looking after creation, of being a steward of it. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it of it. And so it's right that we should care about this creation. It's right that Christians should be at the forefront of caring for an environment that is under threat. But then as we get to the end of chapter one, we have to then stop and think, hang on, so we're being told that it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. It seems perfect. But then I look at the world around me and I do see lots of that. You might have been on holiday somewhere and looked out on something and gone, wow, that's incredible. 
But then you look at the news this afternoon and you see evil and you see suffering and you see people who have drowned and you see natural disasters. That's a reminder, isn't it, that although Genesis 1 and 2 gives us really, really important foundations, we don't entirely live in a Genesis 1 and 2 world. We're going to see more about that in future weeks when we look at what happens in Genesis 3. And what else do we learn? We learn about humanity, about humanity. And we're going to talk about this briefly because um, we're going to, if you're doing Crosslands or you're coming here in the evenings, we're going to do the doctrine of humanity um, in a couple of weeks' time. Focusing particularly on Genesis 1, verse 26 through to 28. Um, hugely important verses, just incredibly important verses. But briefly tonight, just a couple of things, just linked with things that we've already seen. The first is, this is quite humbling, isn't it? The first is that we are nothing. We're nothing. So if you look at the universe, we are absolutely nothing. Just physically, we're nothing. We're insignificant. And when we look at the vastness of the universe, and then we look at God, who must be even vaster, even greater to have made it all, we should be humbled and think, gosh, how on earth can we ever know this God, encounter this God? But of course, the Bible explains that this creator God is also the creator God who reaches out to us and says that we can know him personally. And so in Genesis 1 and 2, you see God's transcendence. See how far above the world God is. You also see God's imminence. Two words that we've seen in the, in the book of Exodus recently. We see that human beings are tiny within the context of this huge universe, but they're also made last. Perhaps because they are the pinnacle of creation. Not because we're, we're particularly good or we've done anything impressive, but because God wonderfully, generously chooses to make something of us. And then in Genesis 2, God's even in the garden. He's walking in the garden. He's talking to Adam. Psalm 8 describes this paradox really well. Where the psalmist is looking, I, I imagine that he's almost looking at the night sky and he's saying, when I consider your heavens, when I consider the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? human beings, that you care for them. But God does care for us. We have meaning because God has given us meaning. And all of that just points forward to Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, who steps into this world that we have broken. The creator God who steps in to take on a human nature, to be with us, to die for us, so that we can be God's children. Uh, last thing, where is the gospel in Genesis 1? I wonder what you said to this earlier. Where is the gospel in Genesis 1? It's really easy to look at Genesis 1 within the framework of the Bible and go, well, everything's good there, so we don't need the gospel. And I think that's, that's partly true, but I think there are faint signs of it. There are shadows of it. Because the God who created in Genesis chapter 1, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the same God as the God of the incarnation and the God of the cross and the God of the resurrection. So where do we see the gospel? Here are four quick suggestions. Tell me afterwards what you think about them. Number one, this God brings order out of chaos. Brings order out of chaos. So verse two, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It's formless. It's disordered. It's chaotic. But by the end of the chapter, God has brought order we, um, we sing about salvation being a bit like that in that song, uh, This is Amazing Grace. It has that line, doesn't it? Who brings our chaos back into order. The saving God who looks at disorder and brings it into order. Number two, he brings light into the darkness. 
So verse 2, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. Verse 3, God said, let there be lights, and there was lights. What would have happened if God hadn't said, let there be lights? It would just be darkness. It would just be darkness. And isn't that the story of the gospel? Isn't that the story of us? If we're Christians here tonight, that our lives would be spiritually in darkness unless God had said, let there be light. Unless Jesus, the light of the world, had brought us from darkness into light. And Paul picks up this this parallel in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where he says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And so we are new creations. That's how the Bible describes us. We are new creations if we're Christians. But how do we get to that point? We get to that point because of Jesus' work on the cross. And what does Jesus do after he does his work? Well, this is what it says in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus has finished his work and he sits down. He rests and his work is very good. That's a parallel, isn't it, to the rest that God God has on the seventh day. And if you jump back in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, it actually says that Jesus does that so that we can enter the perfect rest. So Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9 says, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. That is what we are heading for. And so we see all these these gospel shadows, these parallels, these pointers. It is the same God from Genesis chapter 1 all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation. So we've learned lots. Learned lots about the doctrine of creation. And one of the results of that should be worship. Just like this morning. When we see who God is, we should worship And I think the sadness of when you look at people like uh, Richard Dawkins or Carl Sagan is that they are really good scientists in lots of ways. People who've read their books say, actually, they're really good scientists. They're really clever. They're they're, they're clever minds. But when they look at the universe, when they look at the stars, when they look at the the laws of science, when they look at um, the human body, when they look at the intricacy of the eye, when they look at DNA, they go, there is no God. There is no God. Instead of going, wow, God is amazing. They go on holiday somewhere, they look at the nature, they look at at beauty and they go, there is no God. And they look at God the Son come into the world and they go, no. And that is really sad. And a few weeks ago, Trev quoted another scientist, Johannes Kepler. Kepler was an astronomer from the 17th century. Uh, He talks about the laws of planetary motion. One of the most significant scientists ever. Um, He also wrote the very first science fiction novel, weirdly. So if you don't like Star Wars, he's basically, yes, it's his fault. Um, And he was a Christian, and he said this. He said, oh God, I am thinking your thoughts after you. He said, when I study science, all I'm doing is going, what's God already done? And then he said this. I'm just going to finish with this, and then Dave's going to come and lead us in a couple of songs. He's writing his book, 
and he's looking at everything to do with the universe, and he says, I break off this very vast speculation, merely crying out with the royal psalmist, great is our Lord and great is his virtue and his wisdom, there is no number. Praise him, ye heavens, praise him, ye sun, moon, and planets. Use every sense for perceiving, every tongue for declaring your creator. To him be praise, honor, and glory, world without end. Amen. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing. Father, we do uh, echo those words of Johannes Kepler that uh, when we look at the universe uh, and we look at its grace, greatness and its vastness and its complexity and its, its design, um, we are blown away by it, um, but we're also uh, much more blown away by you, uh, the creator God. Father, help us to uh, worship now in song, but also worship in our whole lives, uh, recognizing that we are created uh, for a purpose. And thank you so much to the Lord Jesus who comes into the world to bring us from darkness into light and to make us new creations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing a couple of songs that pick up on those themes, so I'd invite you to stand. Uh, we're going to sing God of Wonders, um, and we're going to sing um, Creation Sings the Father's Songs. So let's stand and let's do exactly what Sam has said. Um, let's worship God together.
songs of worship tell the wonders of creation's king let's stand let's pray together father god we thank you that we are created to give you all praise and all worship we thank you that you've created us to uh, to know you and to be known by you and we thank you father god that we have a small snippet of what we are going to experience when you renew uh, creation uh, once for all and we we long for that day and we long for people to come and hear this amazing news that there is a god who cares there is a god who creates and a god who loves each and every one of his creation and so we praise you for that amen please have a seat and uh, Sam, thanks so much for leading us through that discussion tonight around the fact that God is creator and the songs that we sung tonight, hopefully uh, tied together where we said we wanted to start. Let us come before the Lord, our God, our maker. Let's bow before him in worship and praise. I couldn't help but think of Mike's phrase this morning uh, of not getting so caught up with the how, uh, but with the wow. And that's really where we should have landed tonight and hopefully where our hearts are in terms of this whole idea of God being our creator, God. So that finishes our time in the hall. Thankful for all of you who've come tonight. If you're a part of the Crosslands course, we're going to go immediately down the hall. Or if you're here for the membership course, please make your way quickly down the hall as well so we can get started there. Otherwise, if you're not a part of one of those, I encourage you to explore that. Otherwise, you can stay in here. There'll be coffee and refreshments and uh, spend some time lingering and getting to know one another, praying with one another, encouraging one another, just enjoying some coffee. Have a good night.